last one. Alright. You've done well. Uh, uh, three lessons. I don't know what's harder on me. A lot to, to take in, in in one setting. So I, I hope, as as always, any of you, just take something. You get something. It's a little bit out of each one. Uh, make it personal. Make it personal to your life, your experience, your need. Uh, always what you kind of hope at least happens. But we're going to jump into a specific life this time, to a specific individual, and know who this person is. And so that was going to make this one a little bit different. We're going to talk about his story and his experience because there is no question he is a godly, godly man. Life changes, and life changes in a matter of moments, and unfortunately, oftentimes, not in the ways you ever hoped, wanted, or thought could ever happen. Some of you haven't maybe experienced that yet. Many of you here have. You know how life can turn on a dime. Um... I had a friend of mine, he, was, he preached in Florida, he was the church that I came to after he left. Uh, he spent time out of the country, he was in Romania on one of his trips preaching and uh, working with the Christians there. He got a phone call, his daughter was uh, at FC her first year, I think her first year, and she was out playing volleyball with a bunch of kids, she went down, she had some something bad going on. And they called him and said, you need to get home now. She's probably not going to make it. He immediately gets a plane, gets back from Romania. You know that's not a quick trip. He gets home, he does get to see her, and within the day of his arrival, give or take, uh, his daughter passes away. And Frank and Joyce Jamerson lost their little girl in first year of college. Their life changed in a matter of moments. How many people have you talked to? How many people have you known that life seems to be normal and things going okay? And maybe you go to the doctor. The doctor comes in and says, well, this, we need to talk. It's, it's serious. Boom. Your life changes just like that. That same congregation that I, I was privileged to work for for seven years or so had another family. Their son was 23. He was with what was going to be his future wife and her parents at a house on the lake. During the night, there was a fire, there was a smoke alarm. They all four died of smoke inhalation. And they lost their son. Their only son was gone. They get a phone call. It's gone. And that's, that's life. It's just, just the way it is. Those moments are always going to come. You're going to find yourself in places, and circumstances, and situations. Some of them you ask for. Some of them, you, you because of your choices and behavior, you ask for what comes. But oftentimes, and a lot of times, a lot of many of us, some things come totally unbid. You didn't ask for this. You didn't want this. You didn't seek it. You certainly didn't do it. How many parents, how many homes I've sat in it? I'm only 54. Where they're broken. The parents had to sit down and tell the kids we need to talk. And then divorce. 
they're gone. The home is shattered. The security underneath those children's feet is shaken big time. And in one moment, he had nothing to do with it. And those poor kids, so many of them's lives have radically changed. And there's nothing to do with it. Outside of your control. As always, in every circumstance, in every life situation, the only thing that I can control is how I'm going to respond to it. That's it. Victor Frankl lived in the Holocaust. He lived there in Auschwitz. And in his book, uh, I can't remember the meaning of life, I think something like that, but he made that statement that the only thing they can't take from me, they cannot take my right to choose how I'm going to react to whatever you do to me. He said that's the one freedom that they, the uh, Germans could not steal from us. That's right. And that's the truth. You and I cannot control many of the life circumstances and situations that come our way. But we can control how we're going to react in the midst of it. I can't think of many Bible characters that more graphically experienced a life-changing moment than the one we're going to talk about. His life changed in a matter of moments, and when it changed, he didn't even realize it. We're going to be talking about what godly people do in the midst of affliction, suffering, and hardship. Pick your term, whichever term you want. Suffering, affliction, hardship, depression. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay. There, you, this, what happens to this young man? You would, would get anybody down, you would think. But how does he react? Our character is chosen. And I'm taking you to Genesis 37. But we're only going to really be in 39, but I want to start in 37. So 39 is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time in a minute. Joseph, um, let me get you to Egypt just really quickly where Joseph ends up. Let me get you there. Jacob had the son, we know the 12 sons. Joseph was the youngest at this point before Benjamin comes on the scene. Joseph was the favorite son. There are a lot of lessons in that parent. Mistakes not to make as a parent. He favored Joseph. It's just became the coat of many colors. The brothers in chapter 37, over and over and over, they hated him. They hated him. They hated him. They hated him. They envious of him. And then that foolish 17-year-old boy, man, what was he thinking when he told him the dreams? You know, what was he thinking was going to happen when you reveal the two dreams that God had given you that you're going to come and fall down before me? And like, oh, you, you think they don't like you now. What's going to happen after the dreams? But he's 17. How many 17-year-olds? Right? So it's not a shock, I guess. But his brothers could not stand him. Now, the text says he brought a bad report about his brothers. And some people say, well, that, you know, he was a tattletale and blah. I think, I tell people, I say, you know what, before you say that, maybe you need to read your history because those boys were bad. All right? Simeon and Levi, because of what Shechem had done to their sister, Dinah, they trick all the men in Shechem, Shechem included. And then when they're done, they fall on them and murder and they kill them. Bill Ha sleeps with one of Jacob's concubines. Jacob, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Judah, later in chapter 39, he ends up lying with what was his daughter-in-law, but he thought it was a harlot. 
And I'm just telling you what the Bible text says. These these boys were kind of a mess. So the idea that there might be some bad report to tell the dad is not much of a shocker. But this is the family that Joseph grew out of. Man, that's a lesson, isn't it? The brothers were not that great. Jacob's going to favoritism. The sister had been hurt and abused. And in the midst of all of that comes an extremely godly man named Joseph who leaves for you and I some powerful lessons on how to react and what godly people do in times of hardship, suffering, and affliction. The boys, the rest of the brothers are off tending the flock. And Jacob comes to him. He says, go check on your brothers. If you know the story, Joseph is 17 when we pick up with him in Genesis 37. Shechem is where they're at. That's why I know back to chapter 34. So what Simeon and Levi had done to Shechem and the people in that town, why Jacob might be a little concerned, go check on your brothers. When he gets to Shechem, they're not there. They moved to Dothan. So he moves on to the brothers. And if you remember the story, which most of us do, you learn it as a kid, but it's not a child's story. It's an adult story with adult themes happening here. But the brothers, you remember, they see it coming from afar in chapter 37. Let's, let's read. Um, drop down verse 18. Let me just read this. 37, 18 of Genesis. When they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. Then said to one of them, Here comes the dreamer. Now they come, let us kill him. Throw him into one of the pits. And we will see a wild beast devoured him. Then let's see what will come of his dream. Stop there. Reuben talks him out of it. Uh, and things change here. But what I want you to see is they see him coming from a distance. We know he's got the coat on. Because uh, they strip that coat of many colors, different blood, and go lie to their dad. That's how much they love their dad. They go lie to him. They let him believe a lie for 22 years. Uh, but here he comes. Let's kill him. like that. His life changed right there. And he's not even he's, as far as you think you could see. He came, there's the brothers, but he had no clue that in that single moment his life was about to change forever. And in ways that no 17-year-old boy ever wanted or dreamed about. We are fragile. We are fragile. People here in our time are fragile. And that's not good. Joseph was not fragile. What happened to him would, would devastate many. 17 year old abandoned. And that just short of being murdered literally by his brothers. But that's what's happening to Joseph in the story. And it happened in a single moment. His life changed. The next 13 years of a 17 year old boy's life abandoned by his family. His brothers lied to the dad about it. He sold as a slave in Potiphar's house. We don't know how many years he was a slave, but when his servitude in Potiphar's house ended, it ended with the wife of Potiphar lying about Joseph, and Potiphar hasn't thrown in prison, and I don't know the length of time for either one. I just know 13 years of that boy's life was either a slave or a prisoner. That is not the vision that any 17-year-old kid has as they look at their life in front of them, but that was Joseph's. 
What's amazing about the narrative, and I love narratives, the narrative when you're reading it, 37, there's not a word spoken by Joseph. The narrator just tells you what's happening. It's not till later when the brothers appear before Joseph but don't recognize him. Reuben and all of them are talking. And Reuben says, did I not tell you, did we not see and hear the distress on his voice when he pleaded with us? And now that distress of Joseph, it's come upon us. And that's the first time you hear that when Joseph was being hauled away, sold as a slave, he's pleading and begging with his brothers. And I can only imagine what he's saying. And there he travels farther and farther, and boom, he's gone. That's it. So, life changed in a matter of moments. He has suffered extreme affliction and hardship is coming because he's going to be stuck upon an auction block. So So what I want to think about, you know, what I'd like for you to do is turn to chapter 39 with you. We're going to observe the Passover on 38. Take you to chapter 39. And I want us to think about what godly people do in the face of affliction, hardship, difficulty. And we'll look at Joseph to answer that. How did Joseph react when something unfair, unjust, that was not right was done to him? How did he react? How did he behave? What did he do? Because this is what godly people, this is what godly people do. Now, I got you in 39. Can't read the whole chapter. Let's just read a little bit, all right, to see the picture here. Start with me in verse one. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, the Egyptian officer, Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down. Look at two. I have to underline it. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in the side, in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him an overseer over his house and all of his own he put under his charge. It came about that from that time he made him overseer in his house over all that he owned. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's home on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. I want you to see that that teaches me something as a Christian and as a godly person. How to react, how to behave when life changes in a matter of moments, when it changes in unpleasant and untoward ways. That teaches me by what I read about Joseph. The Bible said twice there, it's going to come back and then we're going to look at it in a minute at the end of the chapter, say the same thing. God is with him. God is with him. God is with him. Here's the first thing I want you to know what a godly person They refuse to become bitter and angry toward God. How easy would it have been when you're treated unjustly, unfairly, wrongly? as he was, to get bitter and angry. Why is this happening to me? Why has God let this happen? Why is this 
this isn't right. You know, what did I do? It would be so easy just to wallow in this mire of self-pity and in my pity party and look at me and everything. But he didn't do that. And he didn't get angry at God. And he didn't abandon God. And he didn't leave God. He continued to trust God. What do godly people do in the midst of affliction and hardship? They do what Joseph did. They always look to God. They never take their eyes off God. Even in the midst of that, God didn't cause it. He didn't make those brothers do what they did, but He's going to use it for His desire. But He didn't cause that. That's what Joseph tells the brothers, remember? You sold me, God sent me. You made it for evil. God made it for good. He saw the hand of God. He kept His eyes on God. So how I know that He didn't get bitter, how I know from the biblical text that he didn't turn and get angry at God is because the Bible kept saying and the Lord was with him. And the Lord was with him. Why would God be with Joseph? Because Joseph was with God. Let me let me show you a verse. Um, hold your place there. We go to second oh, I'm sorry, first Kings <coughs> chapter eleven. First Kings chapter eleven. See, First Kings chapter eleven. Now I want to notice something God says. First Kings eleven, drop down with me, verse thirty-eight. Then it will be that if you listen to all that I command you, walk in my ways, do what's right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David. And I will give Israel to you. I just want you to appreciate that verse. God says, You walk in my ways, keep my commandments, do what's right. He says, I'll be with you. Now, as a side that's the most important thing about any one of us in this room, period. Is God with you or not? Nothing else matters in your life apart from that single great truth. Is God with you? Because if he's with you, then it's a guaranteed success of what he chooses to accomplish in your life, always. That's the most important thing. God was with Joseph. That tells me that Joseph was still with God. He had not become bitter. He had not become angry. He had not turned from God. He didn't try to blame God. He simply put his trust and confidence in God even in the midst of the most difficult of circumstances, the one thing Joseph can control, how I'm going to react. Yeah, I'm going to love God. Yeah, I'm going to trust God. Yeah, I'm going to see God in this. The sooner you and I can see the hand of God in things that happen in our lives, whether good or bad, the sooner the quicker we're going to have this peace that I think Joseph had. I I don't believe in Genesis 39 that Joseph saw the whole plan of God. I don't believe that yet. Even though the visions were given to him, I don't believe at that point the young man had it down what God was going to do. That's my opinion, but that's what I think to be true. But irregardless of that, he still saw God's hand. He still saw God. And he kept his eyes on him. He suffered extreme affliction and hardship. 
His answer was God. He leaned on God. And that's exactly what we see when we look at Job. Let me are you, go go back, if you don't mind, to 39. Let me add to this point before we look at two more and then we're done. Um, drop down with me. I'm going to the end of the chapter 39. This is after Potiphar's wife has lied about him and had him, uh, Potiphar had him thrown in prison. And I want you to see what happens. <clears throat> Verse 19 of chapter 39. Now when his master heard the word of his wife, which spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in jail, but the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him, and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail, so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made possible. Let me tell you something. That's what I want people to see in my life. When hard times come and difficult things or my life changes, it changes the way that I didn't ask for and I didn't want. I'm on the top of the roller coaster, but now I'm at the bottom. I'm out in the sun. Now I'm in the tunnel. I want people to see God in my life. That's what godly people do. Even though all this has happened to Joseph, people all kept seeing God in his life, God in his life. That's how godly people respond. Do you know that the two prisoners come there and the baker are thrown in jail with him? Alright? You remember they both have the dreams. There are six dreams that define this story. Joseph took the cupbearer and the baker and the two of Pharaoh's. Good way to think about the whole story in 3750. Six dreams. The cupbearer in the baker's dream, remember God, he tells them, I can't, God interpret, and God gives the answer. It comes exactly the way God had said. So one was killed, and one was put the cup back in the thing. Joseph, hey, please remember me. Please remember me when you get separate. He did two full years after he totally forgot Joseph and didn't say anything to Pharaoh. But here's what I want you to remember about that story. When you live a life of self-pity and you wallow in all this and everything's about you and it's all about focusing on you and what's happening to you and, and I'm not seeing the hand of God in this, I'm not thinking about God in the midst of this. When you fall into that trap, you lose the opportunity to be a light and to be an example. And you lose the opportunity to help others. When the two boys had the dream in prison with him, Joseph came in and he saw their faces were sad. What's wrong? Why, why are you sad? And he asked. But when you're all focused on you and what's going on with you, you don't care what's happening to It's about you. But see, Joseph didn't think that way. He was thinking of others. He was thinking about God. He was thinking about others. He was thinking about them. What's going on? And then they told him. Now, why is that little event important? Because that little event of a man caring when he was unfairly arrested, abandoned, thrown in jail, lied about all of this, but that one little man who rose up above all of that was a godly person who kept his eyes on God. He cared when their faces looked sad, despite his own situation. And he asked. It would be two years 
but two years later, Pharaoh has a dream. And the cupbearer, hey, how does this guy in jail with us to interpret both of our... And the next thing you know, the doors of the jail sling open and the boy's out. And they shave him, they clean him, they set him in front of Pharaoh, and before that's over, he's second in command over all of Egypt. The only person in all the world that could tell him no and get away with it was Pharaoh. That's pretty powerful. And he literally went from the jail cell to that position. That's the hand of God. That's what God can do. Part of the role in that was a godly person and a godly life and caring about others. Even in the midst of your suffering and in your hardship, you still care about others. That's what godly people do. And that's what we see. I'm sorry, when we uh, when we look at Joseph. How do you fight off bitterness? Any of y'all ever got bitter towards somebody that wrongs you, hurts you, or hurts somebody else? Anybody here? How do you deal with that? How do you what do you do? The root of bitterness, Hebrews talks about the spring of the alive. Have you heard the story? The the joke, or it's not much of a joke, but it's like I'm drinking the poison hoping you die. But that's what bitterness is. And how do you deal with it? Well, I, I can't go into great detail. But we don't have that. I want to hit the other two points and let you go. But I'll say this. Two things I will give you to deal with it. Number one, stop picking at it. You ever had a sore? And you just keep picking at it? When I was a kid, I did that. Stop it. Stop picking. If you pick it, it makes it worse. That's what my mom would say. It just makes it worse. And then I replaced my mom with my wife, who tells me the same thing. Stop picking at it. I can't pick at it. But it makes it worse. You know that, right? It does. Stop picking at it. It gets better quicker. No jokes. That's true, bitterness. Stop reading at it. Stop picking at it. Forgive. Move on. Move forward. Trust God. Keep your eyes on God. Let it go. And it's the second thing. Just let it go. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that's happened to you. I'm sorry I'm you've experienced that. I'm sorry you've gone through it. But you know what? There are times there's only thing you can do is just trust God and let it go. Benjamin was the last son of Jacob. Joseph has been killed as far as he knows. Benjamin's called to go down to Egypt. If you don't come down and bring Benjamin with you, you're not going to see my face again. That's what Joseph told the brothers. They go back and tell the dad, if we don't let him go, we aren't going to get any more food. We're all going to die. He's not going. Might let him go. Last son went with him. He never came home. Then finally, they ran out of food again. Judah and dad, if we don't, we're all going to die. So Jacob says, all right, take the pistachios and take this and take that and take that. And then he says, fine. Take your brother Benjamin. The only thing Jacob can do is trust God and let Benjamin go. Sometimes, for our bitterness, all we can do is trust God and let it go. Right. let's keep going alright really quick like I want you to see two more things here that I want to think about in the life of um, Joseph what godly people do in the midst of affliction and hardship they, they look to God they trust God but they they make the best of the situation the circumstance what can you do you're Joseph you're in Egypt you're a slave what do you do you look to God and you make the best of it you do what you can with what you've got where you are. You serve the Lord. Right? So let's just love the last two together and then we'll be done here in a second. That's it. You do what's right and you, you make the best of the circumstances. 
all we can do. That's what godly people do. That's what Joseph did. He served God. He did what was right. He kept his eyes on God. Everybody in his circle of influence saw God in his life. The boy had the true Midas touch. Anything he touched did turn to gold because God was with him. And God was with him because he was with God. And he didn't abandon God. He didn't get bitter. He didn't get angry. He didn't just sit down on his hands and not do anything because this is unfair. He did what was right. He made the best of the circumstance. He lived for the Lord in a horrible context. There are more people than you and I know that are living for God in terrible life situations right now. But they're doing what they can. They're serving the Lord. And they're making the best of it, whatever it may be. That's what godly people do. You are accused of taking a Gentile into an area you were not supposed to take them. That's what they did to Paul. So they arrested Paul, Jerusalem, Caesarea, long ship ride to Rome, and then he spent a couple of years house arrest in Rome. Shackled between the one sex, the Praetorian Guard. That's bad. What did, what did he do? He made the best of it. Philippians chapter 1. He preached Christ. He preached to the guards. He preached to those. Of, how do you think there were Christians in Caesar's household? Because Paul would make the best of his life circumstance, no matter what it was, the gospel would go out in places that before it would be near impossible to get the gospel. The Praetorian Guard? Caesar's household? Really? But a godly person doing what's right and making the best, even though you don't like it, is what godly people do. And gospel is taught. In Philippians chapter 1, he says there, starting about verse 12 and 13, others were bold to teach the gospel because that guy that's in jail is doing it. If he can, why can't I? And so others, Paul was talking about, were inspired to teach because of his confidence. Man, we can go on. I thought it's been a day for y'all. Y'all have been doing so much, and I appreciate it. But let me just say, if I add one more thing, that all I would add is this. David was where he wasn't supposed to be. David's family, his children, his men's families and children were where they were not supposed to be. They should not have been in Achish. They should not have been in the region they were in. They should have been where God wanted him, but he was fleeing from Saul. He was not doing what he ought to do. The man is about to go to battle with the Philistines against his own people, Israel. He's not where he needs to be. They don't trust him. The Philistines kick him out basically and tell him to go home. They go back to Ziglag where their families are at. The city. They see the city burning from afar. When they get to the city, everything's gone. Their wives, their children, their possessions, and the city was burning. And they all drop down and they all grieve and cry until they can't cry anymore. And the men are bitter angry at David because it's his fault and they shouldn't be there anyway. That's my point. Sometimes you find yourself suffering not at your fault, but at the fault of others. If you didn't ask for it, how do you respond? That's where David was at. And finally, finally, a moment of clarity for a godly person. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 30 that he, he turned to God and he prayed to God and he looked to God and he put his trust in God. And he said, God, what am I going to do? And God said, go get them. Go get them. And he 
families, their children. They got everything right. It's not easy. That's not easy. But it's what God would people do in the midst of life-changing circumstances. Look at God. They do what's right. They make the best of it. They pray and they trust the Lord. And we see countless people of the Bible who did that and God blessed them and brought them through it. You sold me. God sent me. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. I wonder what he'll do in yours or mine. He can still work the same way in our lives. I don't know if you do a is that it? Thank you. Um, thanks for your attention, Dave. I really appreciate it. Uh, I hope you're challenged by God's Word and the examples of what godly hate people we've looked at do to love God and love His Word. Share the Gospel. And when you're faced with your life-changing moment and your affliction, your hardship, think about Joseph. Think about how he reacted. And help us be a little better when we face those problems.